0: Listen for the Word of God in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 31. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's written that Abram had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was conceived the normal way, but the son by the free woman was conceived through a promise. These things are an allegory. The two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slave children. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem because the city is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. It is written, Rejoice, barren women, you who have not given birth. Break out with the shout, you who have suffered labored pains, because the woman who has been deserted will have many more children than the woman who has a husband. Brothers and sisters, you are children of the promise like Isaac, but just as it was then, so it is now. The one who was conceived the normal way harassed the one who was conceived by the Spirit. But what does the scripture say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, because the slave woman's son won't share the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we aren't slave women's children, but we are the free women's children. The Word of God. That's why I always just skip the New Testament letters, because they're boring. This is what one of my children said over dinner when I tried to explain what I thought these verses were all about. Everyone had confused looks on their faces, including me, boring and obviously confusing. These verses are a lot to take in. Two sons, two women, a slave woman, a free woman, a slave son, a free son, natural conception, divine conception, two covenants, Mount Sinai, president in Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, barren women. I won't blame you if after reading this passage you're like, I'm out. But believe it or not, though this seems like a big jumble of la-di-da, this little bit of Galatians is a messy history in Christianity, often used to affirm slavery, racism, classism, gender hierarchies, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. Perhaps more than anything else, the takeaway from today's sermon may be that sometimes Scripture is just hard to understand. But that doesn't mean that we just skip it. When we're confronted with tough passages, it's good to remind ourselves of the broader context of the specific book that we're in and the unfolding vision of God's purposes as recorded in the Bible. So. We're in the book of Galatians, in which the author is Paul, who violently persecuted Christians, had a dramatic experience of the vision of Jesus, and converted to become the foremost preacher of the gospel of Christ. This book, Galatians, is a letter addressed to the people in the churches in Galatia, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who accepted the good news of Jesus. Paul had preached the gospel in the Galatian churches where they rejoiced in his message of salvation in Christ alone. But after he left them, there were other teachers who came proposing another gospel which was centered on salvation through law keeping. Enough people in the Galatian churches were drawn in by the teachers, these newcomers, so Paul writes this letter to warn the Galatians that they cannot be saved by law-keeping. Salvation is only through faith in Christ, and that is Galatians in a nutshell. In today's passage, Paul is direct. You who want to be under the law... He is, so to speak, looking directly in the eyes of those Galatian Christians who have become convinced that they need to add their performance to Christ if they are to be accepted to God. You who are under the law. Paul does not mean obeying the law here. Obeying the law is something different than being under the law. To be under the law means relying on the law for your standing with God instead of Christ. So Paul says, Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's written that Abram had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was conceived the normal way, but the son by the free woman was conceived through a promise. Paul here tells the story of Abram, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac found in Genesis 15 through 21. And the reason he goes to this story is because it was used by the false teachers who told the Galatians, you are not really children of Abram unless you obey the law of Moses. The Genesis story tells of Abram, who had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, by two different women, Hagar and Sarah. And they were born in very different circumstances, which are crucial to understanding the point that Paul is making here. God had promised that he would provide Abram with an heir uh, to the land that God would show him. But he was old, his wife Sarah was barren, and he had lived in the land for a decade without children. So Abram and Sarah took matters in their own hands, and Sarah suggested that Abram sleep with his maidservant Hagar so they could build a family through her. Abram agreed, Hagar conceived, and Ishmael was born. Fast forward 14 years later, when Abram is 100 years old, he had another child, this time by his barren wife. And so Genesis said that the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age. Abram gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Then a little later, when Isaac stopped nursing, Abram prepared a huge banquet for Sarah and Isaac. And it's at this celebration where Sarah saw Hagar's son, Ishmael, laughing, and she immediately felt threatened by them. So Sarah takes matters in her own hands again and directs Abram to send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. And Abram was upset by this request and reluctant to send Ishmael away, but he ends up doing so. Isaac becomes the true heir of Abram, and Ishmael is sent away. That's the Genesis story in a nutshell. Paul writes about this story because the false teachers in Galatians were using this to convince the new converts to be under the law. Their basic point was, yes, it is good that you believe in Christ, but you will have to obey the whole law before you can be considered the children of Abraham. See, the false teachers were Jewish Christians and they knew that they, that they were the children of Abraham, that they came from Abraham's bloodline, descended through him, through Isaac, and natural heirs to God's promises. Their ancestors had received God's law at Mount Sinai. Their nation was centered on Jerusalem and its temple. So for the false teachers, it was simple. If non-Jews, Gentiles, wanted to be true children of Abram and heirs of God's promise, they needed to obey all the law of Moses, including being circumcised as a sign of the covenant. To Paul, this is an outrage so he attacks these false teachers and this false teaching. And the way he goes about this is really interesting. Paul takes the story of Abram, Hagar, and Sarah, and he uses it as an allegory. He takes the characters from this story out of their original context and puts them in the present situation of the Galatian churches and assigns completely new meaning to them. It's It's pretty wild. But Paul doesn't seem to be bothered by it. He's got a point to make and he'll make it by playing the game of these false teachers. So Paul structures this section using polar opposites in parallel columns to push back against the teachings of the false teachers. The false teachers seem to have used Parallel columns to categorize people, Jews and Gentiles, to make their point. Polar opposites in parallel columns. See, there are two columns, one for Hagar and one for Sarah. And the columns follow a timeline from the original story of Hagar and Sarah, then in Genesis to the situation in Galatians, now the present. For the false teachers, the columns were simple. The Sarah column was clearly about Jewish heritage. From the Genesis story, they were birthed by a free woman as the Jewish nation. And now, in present-day Galatia, they were the true descendants of Abraham, the covenant people chosen by God, the people who upheld the sign of the covenant, circumcision, people obedient to the law and in line with the mother church in Jerusalem. As you go down the Sarah column, they're the ones who did everything right. The Hagar column was the polar opposite of the Sarah column. From the Genesis story, Gentiles were birthed by a slave woman, and now in present-day Galatia, they were clearly not the descendants of Abraham. They were not God's chosen people. They were uncircumcised, they disregarded the law, and was not in line with the mother church in Jerusalem. So Paul takes these two columns and makes this controversial reversal. Everything the false teachers said about their own Jewish heritage, Paul now swaps and puts in the Hagar column. So because of their legalism, everyone who is under the law is now in the Hagar column. This means that anyone who believes they must obey the law in order to secure God's approval are now not the true descendants of Abram. They are slaves to the law, and their circumcision is proof of their human efforts to save themselves. And then he does the polar opposite swap for the Sarah column. Through God's actions in Christ, the Gentiles are now seen to be the true descendants of Abraham, who are now embraced as God's covenant people, and uncircumcision is the proof of their faith in Christ through the freedom of the Spirit. Perhaps a simpler way of explaining this uh, is like this. Paul tells the Galatians, False teachers have been coming to you and telling you that you're either a Sarah or a Hagar. You're either a Sarah or a Hagar, and you should be a Sarah. A Sarah is somebody who does all the right things, follows the rules, and like us Jewish Christians who are the true descendants of Abraham. So be a Sarah. Don't be a Hagar. A Hagar is on the wrong side of the story. A Hagar is a slave, a slave to sin, somebody who fails to do the right things and who follows the rules. But then Paul says, okay, okay. So if you teachers are going to play the game of there's a Sarah or a Hagar, I'll play along with you. So you're saying you're either a Sarah or a Hagar. Sure, then you should be a Sarah, not a Hagar. But because of what God had done in Christ, I now give you a new and updated understanding of what it means to be a Sarah or a Hagar. Sarah is, in fact, somebody who understands that nothing they do can add to their salvation. Sarah, a Sarah, lives in radical freedom from the law. A Sarah does not need to do the right things to be saved. A Sarah only needs Christ. And yes, don't be a Hagar, because now a Hagar is somebody who follows the rules and does all the right things and all the religious things in order to be saved. So Paul uses Sarah and Hagar as an allegory and creates a completely new meaning from the old story in this new situation. It's pretty wild. It's a little bit like me telling my oldest and younger daughter that I'm going to be swapping their identities. So if you're paying attention to the sermon right now, Leah and Kiri, which I hope you are, here's the deal, Leah you're no longer the firstborn, the oldest. Kiri, you're now the oldest. So Kiri, tonight, because you're now the oldest, you can go to bed whenever you want to. You can read until midnight or later. There's no early bedtime for you. And Kiri, because you're the oldest now, you can use uh, the cell phone whenever you want to. You can start an Instagram account and start following all these people. And yes, you're now old enough to drive a car. So after this worship service, Poppy will teach you how to drive a car. Leah, you are now the youngest, so bedtime for you is 8.30 tonight. So, please give your phone now to Kiri, it belongs to her now, and uh, it's another six or seven years before you can drive. And yeah, you can't watch those mature TV shows anymore, no more Community or The Office or Parks and Rec. Uh, I'm pretty sure while you're all watching this, Kiri is like, yeah, and Leah's like, no way. That's what Paul's doing here, this great reversal. And you can see how this passage has caused harm in Christian history. Paul takes the literal story of Sarah and Hagar out of its original context and uses them figuratively to make his point in this new context. But in doing so, he opened the way for this text to be interpreted literally. So that Hagar, who's already sidelined used and abused in the original original story, now becomes further vilified as those people, that race, the evil ones, and all Jews are now associated with Hagar and to be treated as such. Now, we can't solve uh, just about 2,000 years of misguided usage of this passage in a few minutes. But we must remember that Paul himself says, I'm using Sarah and Hagar as an allegory. I'm using this because that's what the false teachers are using. But while Paul is playing the logic game on their terms and within their story, he's doing it in a letter, Galatians, that is determined to prove that the kingdom of God obliterates categories, that God obliterates the either or. That's what everything up to this point of the letter has been all about. We are one in Christ. In Jesus, all categories are obliterated. There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. There are at least two ways I think that this passage speaks to us today. The first is that the gospel message is about grace for the barren. For Paul, taken in this very figurative sense, Hagar represents seeking salvation by works and Sarah represents relying on salvation by God's grace alone. The gospel is that we do not try to attain righteousness by our own abilities. No, the gospel is that we are to receive a righteousness provided through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to rely on God just as Abram eventually learned that he needed to trust God's divine work to provide him with a son and an heir. As Abram needed to switch his faith from his own efforts to God's divine work, so these Galatian Christians and we need to look back at Christ's work rather than our own law-keeping efforts. Paul quotes a saying from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, barren woman, you who have not given birth. Break out with a shout, you who have not suffered labored pains, because the woman who has been deserted will have many more children than the woman who has a husband. See, Paul says there is grace for the barren. The false teachers focus on works, on circumcision and law-keeping efforts. But Paul puts his focus on God's action, the God who provides children for the barren. The false teachers would have revered and proclaimed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in each of their stories, their own fertility, their own human effort could not produce children. Abraham's wife, Sarah, Isaac's wife, Rachel, and Jacob's wife, Rebecca, each were barren. And it was God's purposes to show through them what the gospel is. It is only through grace that Sarah, Rachel, and Rebecca conceived and gave birth, and it's only through grace that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob produced the nation, not by their own human effort. Paul reminds us that the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Sarah, Rachel, and Rebekah. It is not by human effort that we win God's favor. It is only by grace. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. But God is not looking for fertility. In fact, God is looking for barrenness. God is not looking for fertility. God is looking for barrenness. The gospel says, grace is not just for fertile Hagar's, but for barren Sarah's too. If Sarah can have a future, anyone can. It does not matter who you are or who you were. Yet, we resist this grace and try to do it on our own. We should not be surprised by grace The fabulous Glennon Doyle says it best in her memoir, Love Warrior, quote, it strikes me that it's always religious people who are most surprised by grace. Those hoops we become so exhausted from jumping through, we created them. We forget that our maker made us human, and so it's okay, maybe exactly right to be human. We are ashamed of the design of the one who we claim to worship, so we sweep up our mess and hide our doubts, contradictions, anger, and fear before showing ourselves to God, which is like putting on a fancy dress and makeup to prepare for an x ray. Imagine that putting on a fancy dress. And makeup to prepare for an x-ray. We should not be surprised by grace. There is grace for the barren. God is not looking for fertility, but barrenness. It was in Sarah's barren womb and in Hagar's barren desert that God could plant his blessing and make God's nations grow. There is grace. Especially for the barren. And that is good news. Which leads to the second way I think this passage speaks to us today. Paul's allegory of Sarah is a huge encouragement for anyone who is struggling who see themselves as failures, who feel that they don't measure up and that they need to dress up before showing themselves to God. In those ancient times, a woman's worth essentially consisted entirely in her ability to bear children. Ancient cultures told a woman that her worth and righteousness were her ability to produce children and that if she could not bear children, her life was useless to the tribe. Like Sarah, in our barren state, many of us feel the burden of being good enough. No matter what I do, I can't measure up. I don't measure up. I can't get it all done. I can't make a right decision. No matter what I do, I I just can't get this right. There's no win-win situation for me. What school do I send my kids to? Should I really order from Amazon? Which candidate is everything I want? Our lives seem to be what my wife Leilani calls a descending hierarchy of perfection, which goes like this. Ah, oh, that's perfect. Ah, oh, that's great. That's good. That'll do. Oh, well. It's a little like practicing the piano when you're trying hard and you still can get it right. Anyone relate? The last five months have certainly felt like that. No matter how hard you try, you just can't get it quite right. Glennon Doyle again sums up the reality of our living. We can either control ourselves or love ourselves, but we can't do both. We can either control ourselves or love ourselves, but we can't do both. To rephrase that through Paul's gospel lens, we can either work for our own salvation or trust in God's grace, but we cannot do both. We can either work for our own salvation or trust in grace. We can't do both. Paul's allegory of Sarah gives us encouragement and hope. She tried to control her situation and herself, but by her own efforts, she fell short. It is only when she trusted and gave her barren self to God that she experienced wholeness, new life, and grace. Religion says that God and salvation are only for those who are fertile, only for those who are good enough. But the gospel says that God is good, and that's enough. Anyone can belong to God through the gospel, regardless of record and background, regardless of who you have been or what you have done, because God is good and that's enough. Or perhaps to say it with the full force of Paul's passion, God is good enough.